Greetings and welcome to episode 55. Thank you for clicking on that little triangle that points to the right to give this podcast another go as it looks at all things cinematic, past, present, and future. Much obliged. Whether this is your first time tuning in or your 55th, you're taking the time to listen, so hey, thank you. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. There's been a little delay in getting this latest episode out, but for very good reason. For three consecutive weekends, my daughter had a ballet recital at a couple of different locations, one of them all the way up in North Cupcake, Massachusetts, about an hour and a half drive through Boston. I've had my grade 11 research papers on the Great Gatsby degrade. I took my son to see Coldplay Live down in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I gave four different film lectures last week alone. I recorded with Rob and Cheeto from the podcast The Film Geezers for an upcoming Silver Screeners episode. I gave final exams all this week, and together with my co-host Dave, we recorded episode 3 of our new podcast, a joint venture that's called Movies Across the Pod. We take turns each episode and give each other a film or TV pilot to watch, one that the other one's never seen, and then we break it down. For the premiere episode, I had him watch the John Hughes classic The Breakfast Club. For episode 2, he had me look at Big Trouble in Little China, which I admittedly had never seen. And this most recent time, his assigned film was 1985's Witness, starring Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. It's been a great ride so far getting this joint project off the ground together, so please go check out Movies Across the Pod. We wanted to call it originally Movies Across the Pond, seeing as how I'm in Massachusetts and he's across the ocean in Liverpool, England, but that title was already taken. So Movies Across the Pod it is. Well, it's mid-June, and before we get into today's episode, one other thing. This Coldplay concert that I went to with my son down in Fort Lee. So there I was, standing at my seat like everyone else in the joint, and there's a lady standing next to me on one side and my son on the other. She's completely toasted off her ass, and lo, don't I find that the guy on her other side is her husband. She began to talk to me, innocuously at first, but then getting more and more friendly. I didn't know either one of them from a hole in the wall, but she kept asking me, don't you think Chris Martin is hot? Then she was saying how her husband brings her to see Coldplay every time they're around, and isn't it so sweet of him, and he's the best husband in the world. Then she proceeds to say how hot he is, and don't I agree that her husband is hot? Then she's dancing around like some huge thrashing machine as I'm simply trying to listen to Viva La Vida. I mean, we're all sort of swaying, as one does at a concert, but I was expecting to get hit in the eye with an earring that more closely resembled a yoga ball. After a few more choice moments over the next 20 minutes, during which she spilled beer in my arm, crushed my drink in the cup holder with her enthusiasm for a sky full of stars, got yelled at by someone who said she was pushing the whole row down one seat, got offended and told me she hates people like that and was glad that I wasn't, and patted my arm reassuringly, and repeated, isn't my husband hot? I looked at him to see if indeed he was, and also to see if he was sober enough to throw me a lifeline, and he was just ignoring her. I was there like, buddy, switch seats. Finally, the crowning cherry on the Coldplay cheesecake came when I had my phone out to record a part of a song. She grabbed it from my hand, used it to pan the entire stadium, then turned the phone on me to record me. She handed the phone back and asked me my name. I said, Paul. I looked at her husband, who chuckled and shook his head to me as if to say, I don't know what to tell you. Then light dawned on his marble head and he switched seats with her. She sat down with her head in her hands, so I'm assuming that she must have been feeling woozy by that point. Either way, they weren't gone long after that, and I was able to enjoy the rest of the concert. My son, meanwhile, is laughing and saying things like, You having a good time with your friends? By now, you might be asking yourself, What does this have to do with the movies? And, well, to be honest, the answer is nothing, folks, but I feel better now. So if you're listening, person at Fort Lee who may not remember being at Fort Lee, 
Thanks for an experience I won't soon forget. Your friend, Paul. But enough sentiment. On with the episode. Last day of school before summer break is right around the corner. The pollen count is high, the rain levels are low, and Father's Day is Sunday the 19th in a lot of places around the world, including both the UK and the US. Kenya, Zimbabwe, Vietnam, Turkey, Venezuela, Ireland, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Sri Lanka, Japan, Singapore, India, the Philippines, the Netherlands, Morocco. You get the picture. Speaking of pictures, let's talk about the kinds of pictures that move. So, in honor of Father's Day... The motion pictures we're taking a look at both focus on a crotchety old curmudgeon and his estranged grown son who has come to terms with their rocky relationship by the final reel. Writer-producer-director Gary Marshall, he of Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, and The Princess Diaries with Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews, and back in the 70s, the TV comedies Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, directed an often-overlooked dramedy from 1986 called Nothing in Common. It stars Tom Hanks as a single and successful advertising executive who goes through women like potato chips, delivers one-liners to anyone who will listen to him or who want to stay in his payroll. David lives for David. His crotchety old curmudgeon of a father is played by the TV comedy legend Jackie Gleason, with Eva Marie Saint offering solid support as David's mother. And the other film is more recent, from 2013, directed by two-time Oscar winner Alexander Payne, and that's P-A-Y-N-E, known for 2004's Sideways with Paul Giamatti, and 2011's The Descendants with George Clooney. This film is Nebraska, starring Will Forte as another David. This one is named David Grant, the grown son whose patience is stretched a mite thin with his aging and booze-addled father, Woody Grant, played superbly by Bruce Dern, who got an Academy Award nomination for his performance. June Squibb was also nominated for her scene-stealing supporting role as Kate Grant, David's mother, and Woody's wife. Two films, two strained relationships between father and son, two grown sons named David, one film from 10 years ago, the other from 36 years ago, 1986. No! All right, but hold on, hold on. 36 years ago may be a while back, but as always, permit me to suggest helpfully, but helpfully, to call to mind the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. And that said, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both films, then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one, then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. So grow out those mullets, blast the Thompson twins from your boombox, and moonwalk your way on over as we rewind to the mid-1980s. 1986, to be exact, for some Hanks Gleason Saint screening. As you may have guessed, it's nothing in common that's first up at bat. It was released nationwide in the U.S. on July 30th, 1986, then in Australia, Brazil, and Japan, all before the end of the year, before going global throughout 1987. Globally, Nothing in Common grossed over $32 million at the box office, and it was the launching pad for Tom Hanks' eventual transition from raunchy comedy to more substantial fare, while it was also the final acting role of Jackie Gleason, the great one himself as he was called in his prime when he did live TV comedy in the 50s, with the self-titled, hugely popular Jackie Gleason show, which launched the iconic sitcom The Honeymooners. I saw nothing in common when I was in middle school back in the day on home video, primarily because I was a huge fan of Jackie Gleason and The Honeymooners. Anything that he was in, I wanted to see. My 12-year-old brain didn't always grasp the nuances of all the films that he made. I had seen The Hustler, Gigo, The Toy. Revisiting a couple of those in later years and seeing just how dark and 
darkly funny, and in some cases darkly unfunny as some of that shit was, I began to appreciate him on a higher level beyond just bang, zoom, malice to the moon. At the time, I was already familiar with Tom Hanks, too, from the sitcom Bosom Buddies, movies like Splash and The Money Pit. So it's not that I was going into this thing completely cold turkey, but looking back, I think I was expecting a senior citizen version of Ralph Cramden more than anything else. Rewatching it now for the first time since Reagan was president, I was surprised by how much of the dialogue I remembered. But let's dive right in and take a look at Gleason's swan song, and one of Hanks' first shots at a dramatic role in a major studio production. Once the FBI warning on the DVD fades out, I was treated, and you will be too, to a real throwback. The logo of a galloping unicorn leaping over the words, Try Stop Itches. We go from stately elegance and grace to indecency and sleaze as we hear the voices of David Basna, played by Tom Hanks, and some woman, played by some woman, giggling and canoodling. Cut to the sight of the two of them pulling their heads up from underneath a blanket. She says she has to go to work, but Romeo's asking for ten more minutes, then twenty more minutes. She's giggling, insisting she can't, he's pouting, and then the big reveal is that they're not in bed, but in his seat at the back of an airplane, and she is a flight attendant. She stands up, adjusts herself, he asks for coffee with cream, and down the aisle she goes to service passengers other than him. With coffee, tea, or milk, I mean. How in the name of creatures, big and small, they got away with this stunt is just one more example of suspension of disbelief when it comes to the movies. The guy sitting in front of David turns around and gives him a WTF look, and David wisecracks, I'm a frequent flyer, they gave me a bonus. Then we get a dubious bonus of our own. A title song, sung by Christopher Cross called Loving Strangers. It plays over the opening credits and the 80s vibe is so palpable, so strong that you'll swear you can smell the Aquanet. As Chris Cross moans through his song, there's a series of establishing shots, complete with the standard Welcome To sign to tell us that the setting is Chicago, the windy city itself. And how's this for random? David walks out of the airport, lugging this wicked, funky-looking half-mannequin into his Jeep, puts it into the passenger seat, climbs into the driver's side, changes, and heads off down the highway to his office building. He arrives and walks in with this mannequin, obnoxiously greeting everybody. It's actually pretty cool the way they filmed this. About 80% of it is one uninterrupted tracking shot following him through the lobby and past the receptionist and a job applicant, past the mailroom, and down the hall towards cubicles and private offices. He's yammering non-stop this entire time, all cocky and extroverted, patting himself on the back with how funny he is and how funny he convinces himself that everyone agrees that he is. He loudly offers to show his tan line to female colleagues. At another point, he enters a woman's cubicle, playfully tossing clothing up in the air and calling out as he walks off, Thanks for the quickie, you wear me out. It's an ad agency, and he has this energy and this enthusiasm oozing out of every pore of his self-absorbed body. So he's charming as hell, you see, and his charisma is irresistible. But what is resistible is the next moment, when he enters his brand new office, he just got a promotion and a raise, and his co-workers all surprise him by saying that he has a window that looks clear out into the street. As one of them opens the blinds or pulls up the shade or whatever, they all sing at him like a heavenly choir for a really unnecessarily and painfully long series of God knows how many seconds. I couldn't tell you if this was supposed to be a way of letting us know that this merry brand of advertisers are artistic, or quirky, or have fun being together. Or both. Either way, it's dragged out for like five seconds longer than it has to be. He looks in awe out the window, and that's where I gotta call a flag on the play. It's said that he's worked here for five years. He had no idea that this office had a window. He's pretty high-ranking, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he's been in this office before. I mean, they all are, and they report to him. And let's say for the sake of argument that while he was away on vacation that the window was newly installed. 
Why wasn't there one in the first place if it looks right out the front of the building? I know that I'm picking at nits here, but I can't help it. These are the kinds of thoughts that cross my mind. But he seems pretty pumped about this window. So the Westminster Abbey Choir sings its last note, he ushers them out so that he can have some me time with his window, and it's established that the agency hopes to land a major account with an airline called Colonial, even to the point where he and a few colleagues are at a bar and he's having the barmaid eavesdrop on a couple of guys from an airline who happen to be at the other end of the counter. David tells her that he'll set her up with a male colleague if she finds out what they would want in an ad agency. Cut to a lovely shot of the wall directly above David's headboard that we're looking at to the accompaniment of some amorous moaning, followed by the sight of David's hand reaching up and slapping his open palm against the wall as he hoists himself up, rolls over, and has some pillow talk time with yet another woman. Then, in the throes of afterglow, the phone rings, his answer machine comes on, and it's his father Max, played by Jackie Gleason. Crotchety and bitter, he growls into the machine. It's Max Basner, your father. Maybe you've heard of me. I thought you might like to know your mother left me. David lies on his stomach as he picks up the phone. There's some back and forth while David's lady friend gets out of bed and slowly puts her clothes on. Then David says he'll call back. He hangs up, still on his stomach, and she climbs onto his back and commiserates. People just can't seem to relate anymore. David goes to his father's place to get the full story, but Max, who takes forever to answer the door, just sits reading about horse riding in the newspaper, playing music loud enough to knock the wig off John Travolta's cranium, and ignores David's knocking. So David just enters and tries to get conversation going, to no avail. He starts off with, So mom left, but Max only replies caustically with, You see anybody else here? David, understandably, gets pissed off and comes back at him with, Are you going to tell me the situation or are we going to play 20 questions? The best Max can come up with is, I know you want to leave. You've been here nearly 10 minutes already. You got a blonde on the other side of the pillow? Go on, get out of here. Later at work, someone gives David a phone message from his mother, whose name is Lorraine, and we then hear all we need to if we're going to get what his adult life is like when the person says to him, I've worked here for three years. I didn't even know you had parents. David goes to see his mother at her new apartment and pretty much goes on the offensive right away, berating her with, After 36 years of marriage, you suddenly decide to walk out. Is that it, Mom? She gets defensive and not a little pissed when she delivers her side of things, saying how Max ignored her and there was nobody to talk to, and she concludes her yell fest with, I didn't leave because of the yelling, I left because of the silence. Then we meet another character, Donna played by the marginally talented actress Bess Armstrong. Dawn is an old flame of David's from their high school years, and she's now teaching acting class in experimental theater. This is a really weird scene that feels like something straight out of Willy Wonka's LSD-infested boat ride. She has them all pretending to be amoebas, making weird noises and writhing around on the stage and in each other's arms like a bunch of sardines just let loose from the can. I don't know what's weirder and more annoying. The celestial choir in David's office yodeling at the unveiling of his window, these amoebas, or the way that Bess Armstrong practically yells all of her lines. David brings her up to speed with what's going on. A couple of her students ask her, Oh, is this your boyfriend? And she quips, Look closely, girls. This is what you want to avoid later in life. Truly inspired dialogue. Cut to David and Donna walking around her campus, and he's bitching and moaning about the burden that his parents are. You can actually see this scene in one of the film's trailers. He says to her, I had a vision for what my life was going to be. I was going to move away, I was going to get rich, and move into a luxurious mansion, and my parents were going to come visit me once, and they were going to say, what a nice mansion, we love you, David. And I was going to say, I love you too, mom and dad, and then they were going to go away and die. Does this make me an asshole? 
That last sentence was not in the trailer, but it is in the film. Sella Ward comes in as the character Cheryl Ann Wayne. She resists his charms at first, then willingly gives in. Then she's the latest notch in his bedpost as they wake up together in his bed. She smiles and smirks, drops a significant piece of information that I will not reveal here, gathers her shit and leaves. He stands at the door and mutters to himself, seduced and abandoned. Meanwhile, Max is failing at his salesman job, unable to unload any of the stuff that he's peddling, and so he gets fired. And our newly independent Lorraine gets a job answering phones for an insurance company. But that's all I'll say at this point about the plot, though be forewarned. There are not one, not two, not three, but four different musical montages throughout this entire film. If that's your cup of tea, tune in. If not, you may want to familiarize yourself with the chapter skip button on your DVD player's remote control, or if you're streaming, that little skip-ahead 30 seconds icon at the bottom of your device. Despite everything that I've just said, though, I do recommend this film for two reasons. One, for the 80s nostalgia, if that's your bag. All kidding aside, I do like seeing how filmmaking styles evolve over the decades, whether we're talking trendy editing techniques, musical scores and arrangements, the kinds of stories that were told. For example, family dramas, they were big around this time. Kramer vs. Kramer, Ordinary People, Terms of Endearment. I mean, weepies were in. Nothing in common came around just as the trend was beginning to play itself out for a while, so it missed out on any awards recognition or any kind of ubiquitous legacy. But that brings me to reason number two to give this one a look. The legacy of Jackie Gleason. As a lifelong fan of The Honeymooners and The Jackie Gleason Show, it is cool to see his final performance in a film especially one that gives him a few really great moments where he can act his tail off. More on that, though, in the the behind-the-scenes fun facts segment coming up soon. But first, let's now pivot towards today's other film, the 2013 comedy-drama Nebraska. Directed by Alexander Payne, written by Bob Nelson, and starring Bruce Stern, Will Forte, June Squibb, Bob Odenkirk, and Stacey Keach. Nebraska is a quirky, deadpan comedy that I guess would fall into the category of, quote, arthouse cinema. Arthouse or not, it got widespread exposure when it was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for Pain, Original Screenplay for Nelson, Cinematography, Supporting Actress for June Squibb, and Leading Actor for Bruce Dern. It debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 2013, where Bruce Dern claimed the Best Actor Prize. It screened at more film festivals that fall, including Rio de Janeiro, Vancouver, Hamburg, Germany, New York, London, and Chicago, just to name some of them. December saw it released in the UK and Ireland. Taiwan, New Zealand, Italy, Germany, Greece, and the US in January of 14. If you had to pitch the storyline of Nebraska for a 30 to 45 second preview that you'd find before starting your next YouTube video of cute puppies running on a treadmill to staying alive, I don't know how you'd do it, to be honest. But if I had to give it a go, the plot on the surface is this. Bruce Stern plays Woody Grant, a hard-drinking, slightly senile curmudgeon living in Billings, Montana with his wife Kate, played by June Squibb. Woody gets one of those, you may have won a million dollars if the number in this letter is one of the winning ones, oh, and buy some magazine subscriptions, one of those letters in the mail. So he's there like, I want a million dollars. The film opens with a long shot of a snow-covered main street in Billings. A single, solitary figure, you guessed it, it's Woody, is walking slowly, sort of hunched over, towards the camera. 
There are a couple of dissolving shots of just different angles of Woody shuffling along until a cop car comes up behind him. The cop gets out and goes over to him, asks him where he's from, where he's going. Woody just stays nonverbal and gestures behind him as if to say, hey, personal space. He just keeps walking. But the cop catches up to him and takes him nicely by the arm and says, okay, come on, let's go this way. Then the opening credits begin rolling over a black screen to an instrumental theme with string instruments. We dissolve into the interior of a police station as Woody's son David, played by comedian and SNL alum Will Forte, comes through the door, a man with a mission. Pick his father up again. He goes up to Woody and asks him incredulously, You told the sheriff you were walking to Nebraska? And Woody simply says, with no aggression or anything, That's right, to get my million dollars. And he pulls out a letter proclaiming him the winner of this big-ass cash grab, hands it to his son, David looks at it, sort of rolls his eyes in exasperation, and tries to get through his father's stubbornly thick skull that it's a sweepstakes gimmick. It's just trying to get you to buy magazine subscriptions. And Woody's response, at this early point in the film, only the second scene, Bruce Stern hits you right between the eyes with his line delivery here. He looks at David and says, vulnerably, pitifully, but it says I won. But that being said, don't go thinking that this is going to be sentimental slop. Most of the characters in this film are going to get under your skin in their own way at one point or another. They're frustrating, they talk down to each other, they talk trash to and about each other. Woody is no grump with a hidden heart of gold. He says stuff that'll make your jaw drop to the ground like a hot potato. David drives Woody home. Woody's wife, David's mother, Kate, comes out the front door and greets her wandering husband with, You dumb cluck! Ooh, savage. And here's where it has to be confirmed that June Squibb deserved every bit of recognition that she got for her performance. She shoots straight from the hip. She's got no filter. She's got some pretty acidic dialogue, put-downs and insults, but her delivery nails the perfect balance between tight-tongued and funny as hell. She's standing up for Woody one second and verbally castrating him the next. It is a well-written and well-acted role that is a real standout. She got nominated for an Oscar, a Screen Actors Guild Award, an American Comedy Award, a Golden Globe, and a slew of critics' awards. And she won Best Supporting Actress from the Boston Society of Film Critics. So Kate is emasculating Woody while David's saying to him, Dad, what would you do with a million dollars? And Woody's reply is, buy a new truck, and I need a new air compressor. He refers to a character who comes in later named Ed Pegram, who Woody says borrowed his air compressor back in 1974. And David says, Dad, he lives two states away, it's been almost 40 years, I'd say it's stolen. And this will figure prominently in a later scene that's about as eccentric and poker-faced and funny as it gets. It's so odd that it'll make you ask, did I just fall through the looking glass? But the camera lingers on Woody as he slowly makes his way from the kitchen into the living room, sits down slowly as you hear off-camera Kate stabbing him with verbal daggers, like, if I had a million dollars, I'd put him in a home. And having her off-camera at this moment is frigging brilliant. We see David at work. He sells stereo equipment in a retail store, and there's another phone call for him to go pick up his father, who's wandered off again. David has to leave work again. He picks him up again, brings him home again. And now David's older brother Ross, played by Bob Odenkirk of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Ross is on the same page as their mother. He thinks Woody belongs in a nursing home too. But David disagrees, saying that Woody just needs something to live for. That ignites a fire under Ross's ass, with good reason. He retorts, Until now, drinking gave him something to live for. Mom and I are looking at reality, and you should too. 
He goes on to say that it's in their father's best interests, which is more than what he gave them growing up. And he says he didn't give a shit about you or me. David proves to be the son who, for whatever his reasons may be, wants to give his father another chance and to spend some time with him. So he tells him that he'll drive him himself to claim his prize money all the way out in Lincoln, Nebraska. Kate is horrified and flabbergasted and shouts after David as he and Woody drive off things like, he's useless and his mother spoiled him and I do all the work around here and you're just like your father, stubborn as a mule. That's the plot setup of Nebraska. Is it a road trip movie? I guess yes, but that label is a little bit too convenient, kind of cheapens it. It's a journey, both physical and emotional, that these two go on as they piss each other off, learn more about each other's lives away from each other, encounter some seedy relatives, difficult truths are revealed in passive-aggressive ways, and in one sweet scene, an old flame of Woody's from years back, named Peg Nagy, N-A-G-Y, played by the late Angela McEwen in a performance that's brief but natural and magnetic. But don't think that Kate and Ross are going anywhere anytime soon. They both do come back into the film before long and contribute their stuff to make it work. In a way, it's kind of, sort of, reminiscent of the Coen Brothers film Fargo with its cynical depiction of characters living in rural America who, in spite of their idiosyncrasies, manage to come across as fleshed-out characters, even if they might come across at first as character types or archetypes bordering on the stereotypes. If I had to point out one of the film's biggest strengths... It's that there is no contrived, tear-filled, I love you, Dad, I love you, son moment straight out of a Hallmark guide. I'm not saying that these characters don't evolve. I just mean that it avoids sentimentality. There's something about the chemistry between Will Forte and Bruce Dern that'll ring true, especially if you've ever had any experiences of your own with anyone in your life where there's emotional detachment. A fundamental love, but not a snowball's chance in hell that it'll ever be verbalized. The screenplay plays its cards perfectly, keeping emotions under its hat and letting the power lie in what is not said rather than what is said. In the final analysis, if you, like me, are more prone to the sarcastic than the mawkish, then you might find Nebraska just the ticket for a chuckle-filled depiction of what's familiar to a lot of us, the TV droning on in the background while a bunch of old relatives ostensibly together for a family reunion just staring at the TV, transfixed and speaking monosyllabic words to each other, without so much as a glance away from the game show or the Golden Girls reruns that's on. So what say we now pivot towards the behind-the-scenes facts? But before we do, as I say every time, please proceed with the knowledge that there could very well be some spoilers, references to the endings, and other revealing tidbits of information. So, friendly spoiler alert, now. So, what does a dramedy starring two seasoned sitcom veterans like Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason have in the way of fun facts? Number five. The July 30, 1986 New York Times review of the film, written by Walter Goodman, refers to the mixture of the scenes of David's work and romantic life with the scenes involving Max's physical deterioration after neglecting his diabetes for so long as, quote, sloppy stuff. But let's be grateful for Jackie Gleason's little 4 a.m. dance to a jazz combo, Barry Corbin's ferocious portrait of the head of Colonial Airlines, Hector Elizondo's troubles with his toupee, and the sight of a dozen students in a class in experimental theater, all pretending to be amoebas, end quote. I personally could have done without these portrayals of unicellular parasites, but hey, who the hell am I? Number four. 
According to film critic Roger Ebert's July 30, 1986, lukewarm review, the opening scene where David's walking through his ad agency and greeting everybody, as if the pleasure is all theirs that he's back, was not fleshed out in detail in the screenplay. The majority of it is a long tracking shot that I mentioned, with the camera following behind him as he makes his way from one colleague to the next, making one innuendo after another, one wisecrack, and it was improvised, Ebert says, according to Tom Hanks. Number three. <laughs> oh, don't you worry. There was a TV series of the same name that debuted in the fall of 1987. Tom Hanks did not come back as David Basna. Todd Waring played the role. And who knows if Jackie Gleason would have considered a return to sitcom territory had he lived. The character of Lorraine Basna is not in the show at all. Neither, mercifully, is Bess Armstrong's Donna or David's boss Charlie, who figures prominently in the film, played by Gary Marshall regular Hector Elizondo. It was developed for television by Gary Marshall, the film's director who also has plenty of television production experience. Alas, after seven episodes, the network sent it out to pasture. You can find the opening credits, at least, on YouTube. Number two. Bill Macy, probably best known as B. Arthur's husband Walter on the 70s sitcom Mod, is the new Max Basna in the short-lived comedy series, and judging from the opening credits, he was a hell of a lot more cheerful and smiley than Gleason's interpretation. Roger Ebert referred to Gleason's character as, quote, not a curmudgeon with a hat of gold, end quote, and, quote, frankly, hateful sometimes, end quote. In the sitcom's opening credits, Macy serves David at the kitchen table with a smile on his face. I've never seen the show, but hopefully Macy didn't completely ruin the essence of Jackie Gleason's final on-screen character. B. Arthur would have had his ass on a fryer. God'll get you for that one. And number one. By the mid-80s, in real life, Jackie Gleason's health was failing. And he figured he was done with performing. But according to MeTV... Director Gary Marshall wanted Gleason for nothing in common. Gleason was not wild about the idea because he was afraid of the strain it might put on his fragile health. But Marshall asked him, Do you really want your final theatrical film to be 1983's Smokey and the Bandit 3? Gleason saw the forest through the trees and Nothing in Common became his official last film before his June 1987 death. As for Nebraska, take a gander at these winning sweepstakes numbers. Number 5. Rachel Leister was waitressing at a restaurant in Nebraska in 2012 when she got an odd request as she read off the menu items and talked about the meatloaf. Alexander Payne, the director of 2004's Sideways and 2011's The Descendants, was preparing a film nearby, and the way she read off the specials impressed her customer to the extent that she was offered an audition. Soon after, she was reading for pain and landed a brief role as a waitress telling Woody Grant that they don't serve meatloaf, but suggesting the tilapia. She said, quote, I'm not sure what I did well. I think he must have liked how I talked about the meatloaf, end quote. Number four. David's and Ross's two cousins, brothers, Cole and Bat, played respectively by Devin Ratray and Tim Driscoll. Total evolutionary mishaps. They bring on some comedy at first before getting more cruel and mean-spirited once they find Woody's letter. Tim Driscoll, who plays Bat, had very little acting experience and was working as an electrician in Omaha, Nebraska when he was cast in the role. And if Devin Ratray, who plays Cole, looks familiar to you, then you undoubtedly remember his memorable turn as Macaulay Culkin's older brother Buzz in the first two Home Alone films. Number three. 
screenwriter Bob Nelson was a Seattle-based comedy writer who had worked mainly on a local TV show, when around the turn of the millennium, he decided to write a script about rural Nebraska. His parents had come from small towns in Nebraska, so he had strong childhood memories of traveling to visiting his extended family, which included his father's 16 brothers and sisters. He wanted to capture the quirks of small-town life. Referring to the sweepstakes headquarters where Woody Grant intends to go to get his million dollars, Bob Nelson said, quote, Washington State doesn't have headquarters for that kind of thing. If it did, I probably would have set the movie there, end quote. Number two. In addition to the waitress, Rachel Leister, another local non-actor was a man who's in the bar when David punches that bastard Ed Pegram, played by Stacey Keach, smack in the face. This unnamed local was a regular at this bar where the scene was shot, and he occupied the same seat during the shoot as he does most nights. When the shoot was over, he swiveled around and went back to drinking. Salute. And number one. June Squibb, as I've said, got rave reviews and a slew of award nominations for playing the feisty Kate who badmouths her husband to his face, calls a deceased woman a whore at her grave in the cemetery scene, and casually talks with her son David in explicit detail about how men looked at her in her youth with rapacious eyes. Squibb told Entertainment Weekly, quote, When I read this script, I just thought, I know this lady. I'm from Illinois. I see her in my mother and my grandmother. End quote. According to Squibb, screenwriter Bob Nelson based the pat on his mother-in-law. And there are your fun facts for Nothing in Common and Nebraska. It's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 55, was, if there were to be a face-off between Jackie Gleason's Max Basna and Bruce Dern's Woody Grant, who's your money on? Two-thirds of the votes went to Bruce Dern, with the remaining votes for the self-proclaimed great one of TV comedy. So the fictional Woody Grant didn't get the million, but he did edge out Max Basner in a Silver Screen as podcast poll, which is about as close to the next best thing as you can get, correct? As always, thanks to everyone who voted. Involvement like this is the name of the game. Keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that's directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. You're all invited to take a crack at it at any time that you feel like it. As always, I do want to say, I say this every time, I like to err on the side of caution. I do not announce both first and last names, just in case that would make anyone uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, when you send in your answer to the trivia question, hey, it's cool, use my last name, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And do not worry about timing. It does not matter what episode you're listening to, however far back, however recent. Just answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You will get your meme, you will get your shout-out, and if you're a creator of anything, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, a YouTuber, anything at all, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. So last time we took a look at two dancing films, 1987's Dirty Dancing and 1997's The Full Monty. The question was, 
In which 1990 film starring Patrick Swayze of Dirty Dancing and Demi Moore, did the two of them have a clay-filled love session while the song Unchained Melody plays in the background? And the answer is Ghost. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to the following. Trevor T., who's been an active member of the Silver Screeners Facebook group. Thank you, Trevor, for playing. Also, superstar Mary C., who takes no prisoners when it comes to movie trivia. Thank you, as always, for the interaction, Mary. Melissa B., an old friend from college. You nailed it as well. Great hearing from you. Ed R. makes a triumphant return to the winner's circle, as does Silver Screeners member J.C. That's last initial C., and Chris from the Movie Psycho Podcast. And musician Jason Ebbs, who's got albums such as The Deep End and Super Ego that are on my playlist and should be on yours as well. And at the top of that list should be his newest song called Undone. Thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, hey, what's keeping you? Join the trivia. It's fun. Such as now with this week's question. Bruce Stern was up for an Oscar for Nebraska the same year that Leo DiCaprio was for Wolf of Wall Street. Neither of them won. It went to Matthew McConaughey for the film Dallas Buyers Club. But one thing that Dern and DiCaprio have in common is that they both starred in film versions of what classic F. Scott Fitzgerald novel from the 1920s? Bruce Dern was in the 1974 version with Robert Redford, Mia Farrow, and Sam Waterston of the TV action drama Law and Order, and DiCaprio was in the 3D 2013 version with Carrie Mulligan, Toby Maguire, and Joel Edgerton. Small hint, the book itself is regarded as great. One of the best American novels of the 20th century, if not ever. Truly great. But neither film really sent audiences and critics over the moon. Chances are you or someone you know read this book in school at one point or another. Send in your answers. And as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 55 to a thrilling conclusion. Hope to catch you next time when I have on the two hosts of the Film Geezers podcast for a special look at the 40th anniversary of the Ridley Scott-directed Harrison Ford-starring cult classic Blade Runner. For now, though, I want to say thanks again for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and you'd be putting a big smile on my face if you could take just a second to rate or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It truly does help to boost the show's visibility. And a good, honest review will help me to know what you're looking for more of in this show. Because I'm open to any suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the alternate ending of Nebraska, where Bruce Dern's character Woody, in fact, receives his million dollars from none other than Max Basna from Nothing in Common. To the mockery of Woody's wife their relatives and friends, and David Basna's co-workers from his advertising agency, showing him that in addition to the $1 million, he also gets a window. You win. You win!